That's here. That's home. That's us. Il est différent, et plus il est différent de moi, plus il va m'apprendre des choses nouvelles. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. Goodbye, stranger. Hi everyone, I'm Thibaut and welcome to this new episode of Goodbye Stranger, the show where we get to know strangers. The idea is pretty simple. I'm having conversations with people I've never met before and I ask them questions about their life, their stories. At the end of those conversations, they're not strangers anymore. With no further ado, let's meet our next guest, Christina. My name is Christina. I am 24 years old, and I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. I was kind of a poor student always um, when I was in elementary school. And then as I got a little bit older, I kind of got everything together a little bit. I became a really studious person. I became very academically minded. And I just became involved in everything. And my biggest passion growing up was the arts. I did theater. I trained in Shakespearean acting. I took voice lessons. I studied classical voice and musical theater. And I, as a result, I kind of fell in love with the idea of New York. To this day, my, my one true love is singing. I teach voice lessons. I sing opera. Um, I still take voice lessons. I, I truly, truly love singing and the performing arts. My mother played piano and violin. And never professionally, it was just always a hobby on the side. And I had a grandfather who was remarkable, um, who passed away earlier this year. And one thing he always said is he stopped playing instruments. He stopped playing music when he was very young. And that was his biggest regret into old age. And that man has had a life. So if that was his biggest regret, I think that says a lot about the importance of it. And he said there should always be something in your life that you don't do for money that gives you so much joy. And I grew up Catholic and I was forced to go to mass every Sunday. And so much of it is just music. In college, I wanted to study music. And I just failed every audition originally. And I was so discouraged. And I kind of said, I guess this is a sign that it's not for me. And I think that's because I was trying to, to professionalize it. And, you know, I, I had several tragedies and I was very dissatisfied with my life. I was very tired. And a few years ago, I went and I came back to singing And I think more than anything in my life, it was the most therapeutic healing thing that I could have done. And I try to spend a little time every day singing, if possible. Um, but I think it's the, the most important thing that I do to take care of myself. I'm a lesbian. And I grew up in a 
I think, a culture that was very, very hostile to that. And so I grew up with a lot of shame. Like, by the time I was, like, 11 or 12, I was just, like, so frightened of the the person that I was turning out to be. And I think I... I think it's, I feel like I have a different narrative than the one that's very commonly told um, about gay people in particular in the church is, oh, I left it and I hate it and I want nothing to do with it. But everyone in my family is still a practicing Catholic and I try to talk to them and I, I still, I think, engage with it. I think there are certain values that it left me with, which I think are super important and have led to some better decisions that I've made in my life. Um but I would say that I'm pretty agnostic now. I, I just kind of started to realize it when I was maybe like 11 or 12. And I was like, I just have never had a crush on a boy. I feel like I just like force it. And I was like, why do I feel like I have a crush on you know my best friends and stuff all the time why do I feel like they're so pretty and I'm like I was so angry about it and I I didn't realize that it could be okay I had never heard about you know queerness gayness being described in something that was okay it was always something that was wrong I remember one day my I was in a checkout line somewhere and there was like a People magazine cover with Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi on it. And I went and told my dad, ew, that's so bad, like overcompensating for myself. And my my dad goes, what? And he, he just was like, do you realize how many people in your life are gay? And like, I realized that I had gay teachers and I realized that like, there were people that my parents worked with who were gay and that my parents were okay with their existence. I think because I was involved in the performing arts from such a young age, I was suddenly exposed to this like very open, tolerant environment. And I saw people who were living their best lives as gay people, um, especially in Minneapolis, which is a very... Um, gay-friendly city, I, that gave me the courage to come out. And I, I started first by coming out to my friends in the performing arts and then um, talking to my parents and then later my brother, which was probably the worst conversation I had. Uh, I didn't mean to have that conversation on that day. Uh, we, we were visiting family out of state and we were driving up through rural Iowa and we went to an Irish restaurant, top-notch cuisine, as you might imagine, uh, Irish restaurant in rural Iowa. And my brother starts saying such homophobic shit. I was so angry. And my parents had just found out, but I don't think my parents wanted to, to tell him anything. You know, he was so insensitive. He was a teenage boy who just had to push all of your buttons. And... Um, he just kept saying it because he thought it would annoy me. And at that time, I was like a little budding activist, like, you know, really getting involved in a lot of causes. And I think he thought that he would just annoy me. And 
we were walking out of this restaurant back to the car and I just blew up with him and I was like, I'm gay. And he went, you're lying. You're just trying to get attention. And we had this huge blowout in a parking lot in rural Iowa. And I don't think we have had a fight like that since. I don't think we fight that often anymore. To this day, we're, we're pretty close. I've always had financial struggles my entire life. And I think as most people are aware, uh, college in the United States is really expensive. And I have a ridiculous amount of debt that has just grown and grown and grown faster than I can pay it. Feeling like my best is not good enough and feeling the expectations that I had for myself um, and the ambitions that I had for myself kind of closing in. You know, I I felt like a very ambitious go-getter for a long time. And I feel like I'm very, very young to feel like certain doors are closing on me because of um, finances. I think it's hard to, to date when you don't have money. Like I don't have money to like go out to a bar with someone. I, you know, went out with a group of friends recently. We went to trivia night and we won, but you know, there was like two drink minimum and I could, I could hardly afford one drink, let alone two. And I just end up having to have so many conversations with friends over and over again. Like, I'm sorry, I can't go to this event. I just can't afford it. And then I think, you know, that those are just momentary nuisances, but they just exhaust me to an unreasonable extent. I'm, I'm very overworked. I feel under rested and underfed a lot of the time. And I just, you know, it's been, it's been going on so long. Sometimes I'm like, will it, will it end? You know, will I get to a point of financial stability where this does not take up so much of my energy and where I can potentially do some ambitious project that I've always wanted to do. I probably could have made decisions that would have made me more financially secure, but I think I have truly forged my own path. Um, I have, my life has gone in directions that I or no one else could have predicted. And I have made those intentionally, but also by just like seizing opportunities as they come. I speak Arabic. Learning Arabic has been the greatest adventure of my life. I was in primary school, in elementary school, when the U.S. invaded Iraq. And I remember growing up and being on the playground and hearing just casual anti-Arab Islamophobic sentiment. And one thing about Minneapolis, where I grew up, is it's a, it has a very high percentage of Muslims there. And so I saw this kind of the segregation, the discrimination in the city that I grew up in. And I also just grew up with this acceptable prejudice all around me all the time. And um, I think 
I was really involved in immigrant issues. I grew up in a community that was majority Latin American immigrants, and I grew up speaking Spanish, very like street Spanish. My Spanish is very unpolished. I use it in work today. It's kind of embarrassing. So I had this like love of languages. I loved being able to to speak Spanish and kind of like float between different worlds. Um, and I think when I got to high school, I started getting more involved in activism. And it was around that time that Black Lives Matter was coming to fruition. Those were the early years of Black Lives Matter, like 2013, 2014, 2015. And Minneapolis has always been kind of a huge place for Black Lives Matter activism. And I started really analyzing a lot of the prejudices that I had. And I realized that the biggest one is I just like had such a narrow-minded close-minded, I think, negative perception of the Middle East and the Arab world, and I think tangentially Muslims as well. And I like, it hurts me to say this because now, I, like I've since lived in the Middle East and my friends and neighbors um, are Arab and Muslim, and I went to college and I thought, what better way to get to know a culture than to learn the language? So I took Arabic at Columbia University. They have an excellent program. I had a wonderful professor, and I fell in love with the language. And I ended up getting a degree in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. Now I work with um, refugees and immigrants from all over the world, and, and I consider it a huge part of my vocation to address, I think, the ways in which U.S. wars in particular have caused so much displacement and conflict in the world. I studied um, in Amman, Jordan, and I took all of my classes in Arabic and um, lived in a spare room of this old Jordanian woman. I lived in kind of an upscale neighborhood in Jordan, which felt weird to me because I've never lived in the fancy neighborhood anywhere, but I was paying so little for rent and it was, I just lived in a spare room and it was an, an old couple. Um, but the husband didn't pay me any, any mind. He didn't give me the time of day, but the, the wife, his wife, um, she became kind of like a mom to me. I actually became very sick with a waterborne illness when I was there and I missed three weeks of school, um, because I had dysentery and she took care of me during that time. And, you know, I just really got to know my neighbors and I kind of took the opportunity to just talk to people. And I think it was like the first time that I really deeply, deeply engaged in a culture so differently than my own. I think like living in Jordan fundamentally transformed me. And I think it made me a better person and I think it made me a happier person. I, I know so many <laughs> gay Arabs all over. There's like, there's some... There's bars in uh, in Jordan, you know. Uh, Lebanon, Beirut is such a gay place. No one realizes. I honestly think the middle... Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm like, there's some gay shit going down <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere I've been in the world, I always end up finding the gays. It's like we all have like... We clock each other and then we end up finding each other and being drawn to each other. Um, I think... You know, what's interesting is like I've seen in the course of my life in the U.S. just how much things have changed. I came out before gay marriage was legal and it's just crazy in the years since gay marriage was legalized how much more accepting people are overall and even those 
who who aren't are just keep their mouths shut. And I think I have seen a similar thing in parts of the, the Middle East over time. I had a friend and when I first met them, they were really angry about this like Arab gay boy band called Mashro Leila. And they were like, that's not our culture. Like they can do whatever they want, but that's not our culture. They're not representing us. And I was like, clearly you haven't read any medieval Arabic poetry because that stuff is gay as shit. But the, I think when I, I, they later, you know, moved to, to Lebanon and they're like, well, you know, it's fine. Like I wouldn't want my son to be like, it's fine. And then I think, just based on my social media presence, they kind of figured that out and they moved somewhere else. And I went and visited them when they moved. Um, they were resettled in Europe and they were like, I was showing pictures and they're like, is that your girlfriend? She's so cute. Oh my God. You guys are so cute together. And I was like, no, she's not, but I wish like, and, and it was just like crazy to see how people changed over time. When I was in high school, I attempted suicide and I was really depressed. And I think my sexuality was part of it, but I just felt very, very, very alone. And I felt such a desire to be a perfect. I felt and sometimes even to this day I still feel like if I am not perfect no one will love me no one will care about what I do no one will care if I live or die and you know thinking about like it almost a decade on I've grown a lot and created just a phenomenal support network so that I don't I, it takes a lot to make me feel that way. But I think when I was like 15 and 16, I was, you know, so depressed most of the time. Um, you know, it's like my grades were good. I was in every club. I was working a part-time job. I hardly slept. And I think that like people saw how highly I was achieving that I don't think anyone noticed. And I started behaving very recklessly because I think I wanted people, I wanted someone to notice that something was wrong. Um, and I, I think the worst is, yeah, I, I attempted suicide when I was 16. Um, around this time, eight years ago. And... I was unsuccessful. I just vomited. And I finally, I think, started behaving in concerning enough ways where the people in my life started to ask questions. And two of my closest friends at the time, and I was very angry at the time, but I will always be grateful, is they took me by the hand and they made me tell my parents that I was not all right. And then I got the, the psychological and psychiatric treatment that I needed. I was, I was very horribly bullied 
um, when I was in high school. Um, and not universally, but by one, there, there was one guy who had been my friend and we were just really good friends. And, um, I think in retrospect, he probably had some own things in his life, but he started hurting me. Like he would push me down the stairs, push me against a wall. I, you know, to this day have a scar on my leg from, from when he, you know, physically pushed me down the stairs, but would also just say very demeaning things. I would tell him secrets. He would tell people publicly. And I had never dealt with that behavior before. Um, And at the same time, my childhood best friend was going through like a serious illness in her family. And she was kind of so absorbed in her family life that there was just distance between us. I felt isolated and I globbed onto the only person that I felt was, was offering that kind of closeness was offering friendship and he was hurting me. And then he would laugh and he would say, it's fine. It's a joke. And I began to, to realize I began to associate that sort of treatment with this is what friends do. This is like an adult friendship. You know, we're not all cutesy anymore. I'm being naive. And I think that led me into other, I think, relationships where people would treat me badly and I would assume that that was okay. Um, And I also, at the same time, like really wanted to deny my sexuality. And um, I think there was a, there was a guy who, I think just like pursued me and I was like, well, this is my opportunity to like prove to myself uh, that I'm straight. And, um, he really uh, mistreated me and I, um, just always felt like I had to run miles to get a little bit of approval. And, I was starting to feel like even getting good grades and even being involved in all of these things were not enough, Um, especially if I felt like the people in my life didn't even like me or if they were still treating me badly. And um, I was very independent and I, I had to take care of myself a lot. And I was on scholarship at a college prep school um, a Catholic school and really struggled with the sense of feeling like I had to work harder than anyone. I had to, you know, get up and do literal song and dance at fundraising galas for the school, you know, dress up and show I am worth all the money that you're throwing at this scholarship fund And I just felt like I, if I am not perfect, I don't deserve to be here. And I think chronic undersleep and not eating and not taking care of myself just like wore me down to the point that I was starting to have serious health problems and I was really suffering a lot of psychiatric problems as well. And I think that it was just a lot of factors. Um, and I think in order to 
deal with that, I had to just completely change my metric for success. I had to completely change my metric for growth. And I also had to like completely reconceptualize what, what it means for someone to care about you, what it means to love somebody because the, the things that I was getting were not love. They were not care and they were not consideration. It didn't happen overnight, but I think there's this concept in like Freudian psychoanalysis that you kind of have to hate someone in order to emotionally distance yourself from them. And I think sometimes if you're in abusive dynamics with friends, uh, significant others, you even after they treat you terribly, you still see it from their perspective. You still have an emotional attachment there. And one thing that I had to do was like learn to hate in order to separate myself from their view of me or their judgments of me. And I had to learn how to, to basically hate them, not in this way that made me like rage filled, but to really hate the way that they treated me. And I think in retrospect, like I don't really hate them, but I, I hated those relationships. And I spend a lot of time thinking about like, if someone who hurt me so badly came out of the woodwork and wanted to speak to me, like, what would I say? And I think like, I would say, you really hurt me. And how do you respond to that? And like, go from there. And I think, you know, having relationships that did not where I was not treated well in them ending them usually I was getting abandoned but learning in the aftermath to hate that relationship and everything it stood for um at least for a time just enough to separate myself from the standard that that imposed upon me like the best thing that I learned in therapy as a teenager is like you might not like yourself but you have to treat yourself with kindness and respect, like the way that you would treat any random stranger. Someone who annoys you that you work with or go to school with, you still treat them with civility. You don't like trip them down the stairs. But So why are you doing that to yourself when you're annoyed? What are you telling to yourself in this moment? And if your most cherished friend were to come to you right now with the exact same problem, having done the exact same thing, what would you tell them? Anytime I'm like stuck in a, a self-hatred spiral, I stop and I'm like, my dearest friend, imagining them in the exact same position, what would I say to them? And it usually stops that cycle to, you know, it doesn't stop the annoyance at the self, but it stops the behaviors which make it worse, which perpetuate it. I just do so much better. I mean, now I, I work in like psychotherapy and stuff, um, which is true. It's like all of us are crazy. Like we all have our own problems, but I think that like, I, I had always been drawn to this work, but I always put it off because I did not feel mentally well enough to, to have my pain and then hold other people's pain as well. And, you know, I think in the last few years I've developed the skills in order to be able to hold on to people's pain and to be able to do that sustainably without hurting myself. And um, I think that's, that's the gift that the past years have given me. 
Thank you so much for listening to this new episode of Goodbye Stranger. I really hope you liked it. And if you did, actually, you can help spread the word about the show by doing two things. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can also talk about it around you. You can share it with your friends, with your colleagues, your family. That'd be really, really helpful. And if you have any feedback regarding the show, any idea of people I should interview, you can send me a message on the website or the Instagram page. I'll share all the info in the show notes. So thank you again, guys, and see you next week for a new episode of Goodbye Stranger. <laughs>